the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Chris Williams is engineering today's program like nobody has before. Anyway, glad to have you with us this afternoon. We're going to talk with Linda Barrick. She's the author of Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart. We're also going to talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. The uh, Graham Cassidy Health Care Bill, it's going to be taken up next week. There'll be hearings or a vote or something next week. Uh, the deadline is September the 30th, so that gives you some uh, indication of the sense of urgency. And we'll tell you about a debate that's planned for Monday on CNN between Bernie Sanders, the single payer, everybody on Medicaid system and the uh, Cassidy, uh, uh, Graham Cassidy bill uh, that the Republicans are putting forward. So we'll tell you more about that. First, taking a look at the news, uh, President Trump signed an, ex- an executive order today targeting North Korea's trading partners. And that's a pretty broad group um, calling it uh, a powerful new tool um, to get at um, Isolating and uh, denuclearizing. Okay, I'm wearing my contact lenses again. I'm in the testing phase of these new contact lenses, and I cannot, re- <laughs> I cannot read my own notes here because it's in the font is too small, and it's very frustrating because it, I'm not having a stroke. I just want you to know I'm just trying to read. I'm squinting. I'm doing the wide-eyed thing, but I cannot read my own. Uh, anyway, I'll I'll try adjusting the location. Anyway, it's. <laughs> Uh, he's looking at isolating and uh, denuclearizing the regime, and this is one mechanism that he has chosen. The president announced the order as he met with South Korean President Moon Jae-in and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe on the um, on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Uh, he said the order would help target individuals and companies doing business with Pyongyang. Specifically, he said it enhances the Treasury Department's authority to target those conducting significant trade with the regime. I think that's uh, meaningful, significant trade with the regime, including uh, by sanctioning foreign banks. Now, this may have played a role in China's announcement that they, uh, the China bank reportedly is going to halt business with North Korea as South Korea sends about $8 million. So, uh, you know, this this is a significant development. Um, uh, it is unacceptable, he went on to say, that uh, others financially support this criminal rogue regime. He added that foreign banks will face a clear choice, uh, do business with the United States or facilitate trade with the lawless regime in North Korea. Well, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, he uh, echoed the president as he issued the uh, warning to foreign banks as a, at a news conference uh, later in the day. Foreign financial institutions are now on notice that going forward, they can uh, choose to do business with the United States or with North Korea, but not both, he said. Well, Mnuchin said the executive order authorizes the Treasury Department to suspend U.S. account access to foreign banks that knowingly facilitate significant transactions um, uh, uh, that lead to uh, trade with the North Korean 
uh, uh, country. Uh, For too long, he went on to say North Korea has evaded sanctions and used the international financial system to facilitate finding uh, funding rather for the weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile programs. He went on to say no bank in any country should be used to facilitate Kim Jong-un's destructive behavior. So, uh, as I mentioned, the China banks reportedly say they are going to halt business with North Korea as South Korea sends $8 million. Now, the connection between those two, I'll explain in just a moment. But North Korea's um, I learned this week that China's banks, Chinese banks, will not uh, will no longer do business with the hermit kingdom in the uh, strongest sign yet to pressure the uh, uh, the rogue regime. Uh, And in response to the Trump administration to choke off their funding, well, Chinese banks received a document on Monday stating they should halt financial services and loans to new and existing North Korean customers as a result of strict U.N. sanctions passed earlier this month. Uh, A source rather from Reuters is reporting our bank is fulfilling our international obligations and implementing United Nations sanctions against North Korea. As such, we refuse uh, to handle any individual loans connected with North Korea, the document reportedly said. Now, that's that's an alarming uh, move on the part of the Chinese if, in fact, they follow through. And that's a big if at this point. The move comes after repeated calls from the Trump administration for China to help uh, cut the flow of money to Kim Jong-un's dictatorship in an effort to cripple the regime's missile and nuclear programs. China and Russia, note Russia is silent at this point, agreed to the uh, recent U.N. sanctions against North Korea, which included a ban on uh, natural gas liquids and um, uh, condensates. Uh, but uh, Trump has explicitly called out China on Twitter, writing he is very disappointed in the country and accusing the the uh, the country of uh, doing nothing in all caps uh, for us in North Korea. Well, China, North Korea's closest ally, has uh, urged a diplomatic solution to solve the current crisis. And, of course, that's what everyone wants. War Stories host Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North told Fox News on Monday that um, he believes uh, um, China will only truly try to um, uh, quiet its or to tame its volatile neighbor if it believes Trump could take military action. And he certainly has indicated a willingness to do so. And this may, in fact, be a result of that belief on the part of the Chinese government. We'll continue to follow the story, but it's a rather interesting development. And, of course, uh, late in the day, um, Kim Jong-un's operatives responded in an unflattering way. We won't even dignify it with uh, repeating what was said. We're going to take a break in just a moment, but when we come back, we'll talk about the fact that uh, CNN is reporting that the White House spied on Trump and lied about it. This is CNN reporting. Um, Is it worse than Richard Nixon? That's the question on the lips of at least some on the right. We'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. Contact lenses out, reading glasses on. We may now proceed. Well, the U.S. government under President Obama apparently wiretapped former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort in New York's Trump Tower under secret court orders before and after the election. That's what CNN is reporting, citing three sources familiar with the investigation. Now, assuming that CNN's report is true, it means the President Trump, who was ridiculed earlier this year for claiming that his iconic building had been wiretapped, had been, well, vindicated. But don't hold your breath waiting for an apology or an acknowledgement of that fact. Well, just months ago, Trump was called a liar and worse for his tweets alleging that Obama had Trump Tower wiretapped. 
Well, some suggested he was paranoid, had lost his mind or was flat out lying. And CNN, which to its credit, broke the wiretapping story, was among the worst in the mainstream media. Actor James Woods, who's active on Twitter, compared the shifting headlines from CNN on the allegations over the past six months. Uh, on March the 5th, 2017, Trump's baseless wiretap claim, September 5th, 2017, Donald Trump just flat out lied about Trump Tower wiretapping, September 18th, 2017, exclusive U.S. government wiretapped former Trump campaign chairman. That about says it. And on that last headline, it's important to note that not only was Manafort working out of Trump Towers, he was living there. So the claim, again, if true, means Trump was correct about being wiretapped, released his building. This is more than just I told you so. The entire investigation into alleged campaign ties to Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election appears to center on the wiretaps of Manafort, whose consulting work including included rather some foreign political groups, including the Ukraine. Even so, top U.S. intelligence officials have steadfastly and adamantly denied any wiretap of Trump. Uh, With respect to the president's tweets about alleged wiretapping directed at him by the prior administration, I have no information that supports those tweets, and we have looked carefully inside the FBI. That's a quote from former FBI Director James Comey speaking to the House Intelligence Committee last March. Comey was under oath. Well, National Intelligence Director James Clapper also denied any wiretap, telling NBC in March that he would have known about a court order on something like this. Clapper denied to Congress that any of the the intelligence agencies, rather, he oversaw wiretapped Trump and said the FBI did not get a court order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA, the only court that can grant domestic wiretap on grounds of national security to tap Trump's phones. A host of others, including some Republicans in Congress, likewise publicly dissed the president's claim. Well, if CNN's report proves true, we're waiting for confirmation. Those who lied will no doubt say we didn't wiretap Trump, we wiretapped Manafort. Uh, But the, the specious logic comes up short, both legally and ethically, in Tapping uh, Manafort, they knew they were getting Trump's many intimate conversations with him. That's how they could uh, uh, go to FISA and say it wasn't about Trump, but about Manafort. It was, in fact, a roundabout way of getting Trump in trouble, possibly even impeached. Well, again, we're waiting for confirmation on all of that. Meanwhile, if you fast forward to the present, um, Clapper says it is possible. Is it possible that the president was picked up in a conversation with Paul Manafort? CNN's Don Lemon asked former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. This was on Wednesday night. It's certainly conceivable, he responded. Is it likely, Lemon asked him. I can't say, Clapper responded. I wouldn't want to go there, but I will say it's possible. Yet Clapper previously has said that he is unaware of any FISA-authorized wiretap of Trump Tower or the Trump campaign. Lemon began on uh, the Wednesday night interview by asking Clapper to comment on an exclusive CNN report that government investigators did, in fact, obtain a FISA court warrant to wiretap Paul Manafort, uh, Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, both before and after the election, including times when Manafort was communicating directly with then candidate, now President Trump. What's your reaction to that? Lemon asked Clapper. Well, I can't comment on a specific FISA order. I said some uh, some things about this on Meet the Press on the 5th of March, and I stand on that statement. I can't I can't confirm or deny, end quote. Well, we won't go into uh, further detail about that, but it does raise some interesting questions. And one of those questions is, did the president know about Comey's surveillance? And, of course, the follow-up, when did he know it?
Andrew McCarthy, writing for the National Review, says this. We already knew that Paul Manafort was in a heap of trouble. It was almost two months ago, July 26, to be precise, that his Virginia residence was raided by the FBI in a pre-dawn hours. As I said at the time, again, quoting Andrew McCarthy, prosecutors did not obtain warrants to toss the... Uh, the homes of people they regard as cooperating witnesses. When they are dealing with cooperators, prosecutors politely request that documents be produced, expecting the witness and his lawyers to comply. If some coercion is thought necessary, they will issue a grand jury subpoena, an enforceable directive to produce documents, but one that still allows the witness to hand over the materials, not have them forcibly seized. The execution of a search warrant, even if it goes smoothly, is a show of force. It is intimidating. When we first learned of the raid, I also emphasized its timing, pre-dawn. Under federal law, search warrants are supposed to be executed during daytime hours when agents can be expected to knock on the door, announce their presence and purpose, and be admitted by the occupant of the premises. If investigators want to search a home before 6 a.m., they need permission. To get it, they have to convince the judge that if the occupant were alerted to the agent's presence before they entered, it is likely he would destroy evidence or pose a danger. When I pointed that out, some said I was reading too much into it to prom- promote agent safety. They countered the FBI proceeds in the early morning whenever possible. In fact, that is not always the case. And in any event, the FBI preference is um, to proceed in the early morning. Uh, namely 6 a.m., is not the same thing as barging in even earlier, for which, again, special permission is required. But now you needn't take my word for it. Assuming Monday's New York Times report is correct, the FBI entered covertly by picking the lock on Manafort's front door while he was sleeping. Clearly, that is not standard operating procedure, certainly not at a in a white-collar crime. Mueller's investigators wanted to start grabbing files and copying hard drives before Manafort had a chance to call his lawyers or impede the search in any way. It was their way of saying Manafort could not be trusted. That's intimidating, too. Well, in light of the latest revelations, which um, David French outlined in a corner post, uh, National Review, uh, he stands by what he said uh, when news of the raid first surfaced. And this is a quote. There are two possible rationales for a search warrant under the circumstances. First, the legitimate rationale. Investigators in good faith believe Manafort, who is either a subject or a witness in the investigation, was likely to destroy rather than surrender relevant evidence. Second, the brass knuckle rationale. The prosecutor is attempting to intimidate the witness or subject to say nothing of others who are similarly situated and to voluntarily um, uh, providing everything he may know of an incriminating nature about people the prosecutor is targeting. Note that these rationales are not mutually exclusive. Well, he goes on in the uh, National Review article on the subject, pointing out a few points worth mulling over. Number one, the current Manafort probe is a criminal investigation, which special counsel Mueller is pursuing with a grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia. The search in July involved a regular criminal law search warrant. By contrast, the prior surveillance of Manafort were counterintelligence investigations conducted by the Obama Justice Department and FBI with the assistance of the secret court created by the 1976 Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. Counterintelligence investigations are thus often called FISA investigations or national security investigations. Well, the difference, as we've pointed out several times, is significant. A criminal investigation is an effort to make a prosecutable case that a subject has committed a crime. 
A FISA investigation is an effort to understand the actions and intentions of a foreign power by monitoring one of its suspected agents, i.e. by eavesdropping on communications or conducting searches under FISA. Being a foreign agent is not a crime per se. Whether the relationship is criminal depends on the nature of the actions the operative takes. So in a FISA investigation, it's not necessary to show probable cause that a suspect has committed a crime in order to search his home or tap his phone. All that is needed is probable cause that he's acting as an agent of a foreign power. Well, according to the CNN revelations of late, the the FISA surveillance took place in two phases. The first from 2014 until sometime in early 2016. The second in late 2016 into early 2017. This suggests that they were probably two separate FISA investigations. Initially, I suspect Manafort was investigated as an agent of the Kremlin backed by a faction in Ukraine. Uh, the name I won't try to pr- uh, pronounce, but for which he had done political consulting work for many years, reported uh, reportedly for millions of dollars. Subsequently, he was investigated as a suspected agent of Russia in connection with the Putin regime's meddling of the 2016 election. I am betting the probable cause evidence was overwhelming in phase one, sketchy in phase two. Uh, anyway, he goes on from there with several other points worth um, uh, n- making note of. And the article is uh, in the National Review, uh, Andrew McCarthy, on what is developing into a much more serious affair than I think many thought, at least initially. And we'll continue to follow that story. Coming up, we're going to talk with Linda Barrick. She is the author of Beauty Marks. She has some. Now, some might call them scars, but there's something about the nature of these beauty marks worth pondering. The subtitle of her book, Healing Your Wounded Heart. She'll join me in just a few moments. Also, later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Maria Fishpaw. She's the director of domestic policy studies at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity. We'll talk about the Graham Cassidy health care bill, which is uh, going to be taken up in earnest next week. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. Contact lenses out, reading glasses on. We may now proceed. Well, the U.S. government under President Obama apparently wiretapped former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort in New York's Trump Tower under secret court orders before and after the election. That's what CNN is reporting, citing three sources familiar with the investigation. Now, assuming that CNN's report is true, it means the President Trump, who was ridiculed earlier this year for claiming that his iconic building had been wiretapped, had been, well, vindicated. But don't hold your breath waiting for an apology or an acknowledgement of that fact. Well, just months ago, Trump was called a liar and worse for his tweets alleging that Obama had Trump Tower wiretapped. Well, some suggested he was paranoid, had lost his mind or was flat out lying. And CNN, which to its credit, broke the wiretapping story, was among the worst in the mainstream media. Actor James Woods who's active on Twitter, compared the shifting headlines from CNN on the allegations over the past six months. Uh, On March the 5th, 2017, Trump's baseless wiretap claim, September 5th, 2017, Donald Trump just flat out lied about Trump Tower wiretapping, September 18th, 2017, exclusive U.S. government wiretapped former Trump campaign chairman. 
That about says it. And on that last headline, it's important to note that not only was Manafort working out of Trump Towers, he was living there. So the claim, again, if true, means Trump was correct about being wiretapped, released his building. This is more than just I told you so. The entire investigation into alleged campaign ties to Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election appears to center on the wiretaps of Manafort, whose consulting work including included rather some foreign political groups, including the Ukraine. Even so, top U.S. intelligence officials have steadfastly and adamantly denied any wiretap of Trump. Uh, With respect to the president's tweets about alleged wiretapping directed at him by the prior administration, I have no information that supports those tweets, and we have looked carefully inside the FBI. That's a quote from former FBI Director James Comey speaking to the House Intelligence Committee last March. Comey was under oath. Well, National Intelligence Director James Clapper also denied any wiretap, telling NBC in March that he would have known about a court order on something like this. Clapper denied to Congress that any of the the intelligence agencies, rather, he oversaw wiretapped Trump and said the FBI did not get a court order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISA, the only court that can grant domestic wiretap on grounds of national security to tap Trump's phones. A host of others, including some Republicans in Congress, likewise publicly dissed the president's claim. Well, if CNN's report proves true, we're waiting for confirmation. Those who lied will no doubt say we didn't wiretap Trump, we wiretapped Manafort. Uh, But the, the specious logic comes up short, both legally and ethically, in Tapping uh, Manafort, they knew they were getting Trump's many intimate conversations with him. That's how they could uh, uh, go to FISA and say it wasn't about Trump, but about Manafort. It was, in fact, a roundabout way of getting Trump in trouble, possibly even impeached. Well, again, we're waiting for confirmation on all of that. Meanwhile, if you fast forward to the present, um, Clapper says it is possible. Is it possible that the president was picked up in a conversation with Paul Manafort? CNN's Don Lemon asked former director of national intelligence James Clapper. This was on Wednesday night. It's certainly conceivable, he responded. Is it likely, Lemon asked him. I can't say, Clapper responded. I wouldn't want to go there, but I will say it's possible. Yet Clapper previously has said that he is unaware of any FISA-authorized wiretap of Trump Tower or the Trump campaign. Lemon began on uh, the Wednesday night interview by asking Clapper to comment on an exclusive CNN report that government investigators did, in fact, obtain a FISA court warrant to wiretap Paul Manafort, uh, Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, both before and after the election, including times when Manafort was communicating directly with then candidate, now President Trump. What's your reaction to that? Lemon asked Clapper. Well, I can't comment on a specific FISA order. I said some uh, some things about this on Meet the Press on the 5th of March, and I stand on that statement. I can't I can't confirm or deny, end quote. Well, we won't go into uh, further detail about that, but it does raise some interesting questions. And one of those questions is, did the president know about Comey's surveillance? And, of course, the follow-up, when did he know it? Andrew McCarthy, writing for the National Review, says this. We already knew that Paul Manafort was in a heap of trouble. It was almost two months ago, July 26, to be precise, that his Virginia residence was raided by the FBI in a pre-dawn hours. As I said at the time, again, quoting Andrew McCarthy, prosecutors did not obtain warrants to toss the Uh, The homes of people they regard as cooperating witnesses when they are dealing with cooperators, prosecutors politely request that documents be produced, expecting the witness and his lawyers to comply. If some coercion is thought necessary, they will issue a grand jury subpoena, an enforceable directive to produce documents, but one that still allows the witness to hand over the materials, not have them forcibly seized. 
The execution of a search warrant, even if it goes smoothly, is a show of force. It is intimidating. When we first learned of the raid, I also emphasized its timing. Pre-dawn. Under federal law, search warrants are supposed to be executed during daytime hours when agents can be expected to knock on the door, announce their presence and purpose, and be admitted by the occupant of the premises. If investigators want to search a home before 6 a.m., they need permission. To get it, they have to convince the judge that if the occupant were alerted to the agent's presence before they entered, it is likely he would destroy evidence or pose a danger. When I pointed that out, some said I was reading too much into it to promote agent safety. They countered the FBI proceeds in the early morning whenever possible. In fact, that is not always the case. And in any event, the FBI preference is um, to proceed in the early morning. Uh, namely 6 a.m., is not the same thing as barging in even earlier, for which, again, special permission is required. But now you needn't take my word for it. Assuming Monday's New York Times report is correct, the FBI entered covertly by picking the lock on Manafort's front door while he was sleeping. Clearly, that is not standard operating procedure, certainly not at a in a white-collar crime. Mueller's investigators wanted to start grabbing files and copying hard drives before Manafort had a chance to call his lawyers or impede the search in any way. It was their way of saying Manafort could not be trusted. That's intimidating, too. Well, in light of the latest revelations, which um, David French outlined in a corner post, uh, National Review, uh, he stands by what he said uh, when news of the raid first surfaced. And this is a quote. There are two possible rationales for a search warrant under the circumstances. First, the legitimate rationale. Investigators in good faith believe Manafort, who is either a subject or a witness in the investigation, was likely to destroy rather than surrender relevant evidence. Second, the brass knuckle rationale. The prosecutor is attempting to intimidate the witness or subject to say nothing of others who are similarly situated into voluntarily um, uh, providing everything he may know of an incriminating nature about people the prosecutor is targeting. Note that these rationales are not mutually exclusive. Well, he goes on in the uh, National Review article on the subject, pointing out a few points worth mulling over. Number one, the current Manafort probe is a criminal investigation, which special counsel Mueller is pursuing with a grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia. The search in July involved a regular criminal law search warrant. By contrast, the prior surveillance of Manafort were counterintelligence investigations conducted by the Obama Justice Department and FBI with the assistance of the secret court created by the 1976 Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. Counterintelligence investigations are thus often called FISA investigations or national security investigations. Well, the difference, as we've pointed out several times, is significant. A criminal investigation is an effort to make a prosecutable case that a subject has committed a crime. A FISA investigation is an effort to understand the actions and intentions of a foreign power by monitoring one of its suspected agents, i.e. by eavesdropping on communications or conducting searches under FISA. Being a foreign agent is not a crime per se, where the, the relationship is criminal depends on the nature of the actions the operative takes. So in a FISA investigation, it's not necessary to show probable cause that a suspect has committed a crime in order to search his home or tap his phone. All that is needed is probable cause that he's acting as an agent of a foreign power. Well, according to the CNN revelations of late, the the FISA surveillance took place in two phases. The first from 2014 until sometime in early 2016. The second in late 2016 into early 2017. This suggests that they were probably two separate FISA investigations. Initially, I suspect Manafort was investigated as an agent of the Kremlin backed by a faction in Ukraine. 
uh, the name I won't try to pr- uh, pronounce, but for which he had done political consulting work for many years, reported uh, reportedly for millions of dollars. Subsequently, he was investigated as a suspected agent of Russia in connection with the Putin regime's meddling of the 2016 election. I am betting the probable cause evidence was overwhelming in phase one, sketchy in phase two. Uh, anyway, he goes on from there with several other points worth um, uh, n- making note of. And the article is uh, in the National Review, uh, Andrew McCarthy, on what is developing into a much more serious affair than I think many thought, at least initially. And we'll continue to follow that story. Coming up, we're going to talk with Linda Barrick. She is the author of Beauty Marks. She has some. Now, some might call them scars, but there's something about the nature of these beauty marks worth pondering. The subtitle of her book, Healing Your Wounded Heart. She'll join me in just a few moments. Also, later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Maria Fishpaw. She's the director of domestic policy studies at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity. We'll talk about the Graham Cassidy health care bill, which is uh, going to be taken up in earnest next week. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Linda Barrick's life changed forever when a drunk driver slammed into her family van, nearly killing her daughter and leaving her, her husband and their son critically injured. She draws on her remarkable story in her latest book, Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart, to take readers on a journey of emotional, physical and spiritual restoration. She writes about and has experienced shattered dreams and emotional pain. She says it can make you feel hopeless, discouraged, and distant from God. But some of your scars may be visible, others hidden. And you may wonder, does does your pain have any purpose? Is my story too ugly to redeem? Well, the book covers all of that. Beauty Marks helps readers struggle, uh, struggling rather with their own uh, wounds, eliminate shame, improve the way uh, they feel physically, realize that they're never alone and discover the purpose of their pain. And I'm delighted to uh, talk with her about her experience, this book, and what God has to say about those uh, those beauty marks. Linda Barrick is author of Miracle for Jen and Total Bliss Bible Study. She is an inspirational speaker and founder of Hope Out Loud, an international ministry. She leads a weekly Bible study of over 500 women in Lynchburg, Virginia, where she lives with her husband and their uh, children, Jennifer and Joshua. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In the introduction of your book, you begin uh, by saying this, if I can get to my page, I woke up with my face smashed against a crushed glass windshield. Moments earlier, I'd been watching my beautiful 15-year-old daughter sing in her first choir concert at church. Our family's moment of joy and excitement suddenly became our darkest moment. On November 5th, 2006, a a drunk driver traveling more than 80 miles per hour struck our van head on. Tell us a bit about that day before and after. Well, it was it was one of the best days of our life. Um, my son Josh was 11, and he was playing a baseball game. He won a tournament. My husband was his coach, and they rushed home to watch um, our daughter Jen sing in her first choir concert at church. And Jennifer was 15, and my father is a preacher. His name is Dr. Ed Heinsen, and he preached that night on Revelation. And I remember at the end of the message, he said, if you know Jesus as your Savior, we win. 
win. He just yelled, we win, and he shut the Bible. And um, it was a great night. A lot of people came forward to pray that night at church, and I love a party. And so we started to invite friends over to our house uh, to watch a football game um, that Sunday evening. And we were less than a mile from our home uh, when we were hit by a drunk driver, and he had already hit another vehicle. Um, it was a mm. hit and run, and they had followed him and called 911 for about 20 minutes, begging the police to come because they knew he would he was going to kill somebody. And um, he eventually passed out in his car at a, at a stoplight, and the police did come, and um, they got him out of the car and did not handcuff him and did not take his keys and they put him back in the car and said, wait here. And that's when he, um, he came at us going 80 miles oh. an hour. So you see where over and over it could have been prevented and yet God allowed it. Um, and he's been with us, you know, in one second, our life changed forever. Um, and I, that story you just read in the book, I mean, I, when I did come to, my face was just smashed up against the windshield and I couldn't figure out how I had gotten there because I was just watching Jen sing in the choir concert. And, you know, when you have a bad dream and you just want to wake up out of that dream and I was just saying, is this real or is this a dream? And my son, Josh was sitting right behind me in our van and he was the least injured and he said mom it's real Mm. and so we just started crying out to God and just saying Lord Jesus come to our rescue and um, have mercy on us and uh, we were trying to wake up Jennifer and um, she was a Glasgow scale of three at the car wreck and dead people are three Um, she suffered a global traumatic brain injury and we were all four family members scattered to four different hospitals within hours of each other um, and so I didn't see Jen for 16 days. I didn't see my husband for 16 days. Um, but the power of prayer, you know, in your darkest moments, you just cry out to God. And um, he was with us. But it it has been a long journey. But he has walked with us every step of the way. The title of your book is Beauty Marks. And in the first chapter, you begin by writing, I have a scar. It runs from one eyebrow to the other. It's like my own permanent roadmap marking the shortest distance between one eyebrow and the other. My scar is evidence that I was wounded in the accident that changed my life forever. I should probably have plastic surgery to get it fixed once and for all, but when you've lived in the hospital for months, had multiple orthopedic surgeries, had a husband battling prostate cancer, and a daughter with a traumatic brain injury, the last thing on your priority list is elective cosmetic surgery. So my scar remains. Now, you use the word beauty mark, and I think many would think uh, you're talking about a blemish. And yet somehow (laughs) what you describe there, the thing that we all want to avoid, it it has become a beauty mark. Tell us a little bit about the injuries you sustained. Well, I, my whole left side was crushed, um, so I had about seven broken ribs. Um, my left lung collapsed. I had a totally crushed left foot, um, and my, my left arm um, has a rod in it to this day, and I had three tendon transfers um, in my hand. So even when I typed the book, it was with one finger that mm. works on my left hand. Um, but, um, you know, the whole, we all have scars. That's one thing is, as we travel and, and get to speak as a family and give people hope, we find that everyone's hurting in different ways. And um, even if you don't have physical scars, we all have emotional scars and, and our hearts are hurting and broken in different ways. And, and a beauty mark is when God... Um, 
when he redeems all that Satan tried to take from us, then he uses it for his glory. And so if we can help someone else, if we can encourage someone else, our pain gives us a purpose. And especially when we can share Jesus with someone else, um, it doesn't take the pain away, but it gives us a purpose greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now tell us a little bit about the struggles you had with your faith between the accident and your daughter Jen's cancer diagnosis. Well, I, you know, you can imagine um, just we were on this long journey. Um, Jennifer was in a coma for five weeks, and um, we didn't know if she'd ever wake up. And when she started to emerge from her coma, um, she couldn't talk to us. And she would moan in pain, and she was in this bed that was zipped up like a tent to keep her from falling on the ground. And Andy and I are in wheelchairs, my husband and I, and... um, all of a sudden, Jennifer started praying and talking to Jesus, and it was this uninjured voice, and it was the only time we could understand her, and she was just having this two-way conversation and saying, Lord, you're so good, you're so faithful, there aren't words to describe you, and um, there was times in the hospital, she was she was completely blind when she woke up from her coma. She could not look at us and know that we were her parents. Um, mm. She didn't know who she was. Um, she didn't know anything, but she knew Jesus. And it was like her mind and her body was so broken, and yet the Holy Spirit was alive and perfect inside of her. And she could see Jesus. She would talk to him. We'd say, can we pray with you? And she'd say, he's right here. (laughs) Just talk to him. And so as a mother, I'm watching my child who's so broken, and yet she's praising God. And she has so much physical pain. She's screaming in the shower. It feels like needles hitting her body. She has terrible head pain. Uh, She can't eat. She can't, you know, she can't do anything. And yet um, she doesn't have a short-term memory. So um, she's crying one minute in physical pain, and the next minute she's saying, I'm so full of joy. And so Mm -hmm. I'm on this roller coaster of I don't, you know, um, I want to have joy like Jen does, and I want to trust God. She has childlike faith, and yet um, life is hard, and it's so hard to watch your child be in pain. And so we were on this journey of of just healing for, for like five years, and then Jen was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and it just took the wind out of me again. Um, where I just was so angry at God again. And I was saying, Lord, you know, why does Jen have to still suffer because of the sin of someone else? Mm. And maybe you're listening and you feel like you're still suffering because of poor choices that someone else made. And um, Jennifer said, well, if I have to have cancer, I'm just going to share Jesus with every doctor and every nurse. And she took her little prayer book to to the hospital, and she handed it out to every doctor and every nurse. And, um, you know, what was amazing was this, um, a year ago, we were speaking at a church right near the hospital at UVA, and a lady came with no hair and a baseball cap. And um, she, after the service, ran up to Jen, and she had one of Jen's prayer books, and it was all torn and Mm. and worn. And she said, one of the nurses at UVA saved this for me, and I hope it's okay, but I've been reading your prayers for two years, and I accepted Jesus. There's a salvation (laughs) prayer in the back. And, um, And so... 
we got so excited that we got to meet her. I mean, I mean, many people have been impacted because of Jen's life and her joy and her faith, but this was one person that, you know, yes, Jen had cancer, but she had it at just the right time so yeah. that someone else, um, you know, it changed their destiny yeah, forever. Yeah. And a couple months ago, we learned that this lady had died. And again, I'm so sad. And Jen said, Mom, she is healed. She's in heaven for all of eternity. And so, you know, the things we go through in this life are temporary. The pain is temporary. But what if what if our pain puts us face to face with someone else in pain? And what if we share Jesus with them and change their destiny forever? Mm, and so yeah. that is a beauty mark. That is um, that is giving us purpose beyond ourselves. We're talking this afternoon with Linda Barrick. She's the author of Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking with Linda Barrick. She's the author of Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart. She not only wrote the book, but she has lived the experience and can say that those scars can become beauty marks. What a beautiful story she tells of uh, of her experience along with her family. Now, this book is really all about turning scars into b- marks of victory. How challenging can that process be? You've been through it and you've witnessed others. How challenging can it be? Well, it's. Um, I think forgiveness is one of the most challenging things, and it's something um, that if we truly want our hearts to be healed, and uh, we have to learn how to forgive, not in our own strength, but in God's strength. And that is one thing um, that God really showed me through my daughter having cancer. Just like um, the thyroid cancer was spreading in my daughter and spreading to her lymph nodes, we had to get it out so it didn't hurt her anymore. The same with this. Bitterness. Um, when we don't get the bitterness out, it's a cancer of our soul, and it just spreads and it torments us. It doesn't really torment the other person. We're hurting ourselves, and and by forgiveness, I'm not talking about. We're not saying that we trust the person. We're not saying that we're reconciled um, in a relationship, but just that we get that bitterness out um, and we just give it to God. Uh, my daughter likes to say we take the person off our hook and put them on God's hook, and then we're free for God to use us. And so um, there's a whole chapter about forgiveness in the Beauty Marks book that's powerful, and it talks about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. Mm -hmm. And we use the example of Jesus on the cross and how while they're killing him, he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they they still keep on killing him. They don't change their bad behavior. Um, But Jesus is giving us an example. I believe that the sooner we forgive, the better. You know, if we don't even receive that pain into our heart, we just pray it up. And if we're if we're able to pray for the person that hurt us, um, and I did a lot of focus groups for this book, and um, it was so interesting. The people that had less pain attached to their wounds were ones that could somehow feel sorry for the person that hurt them and know that that person was worse off, you know, more wounded than they were. Um, for instance, if the person who hurt you doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, um, and they're going to die and go to hell one day, I mean, that's something you can pray for their salvation um, and have empathy uh, for them. So there's just a unique healing process all through the book, through the words of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection words that empower us to go out and make a difference in the world, that God can use us in greater ways because of all that we have been through. And our pain 
healing makes us passionate to help others. It gives us a purpose. And, um, and so that's what Beauty Marks is all about. And there's actually free videos that go along with the book um, on our website on HopeOutloud.com. Um, you can get free videos. There's six of them that go with the study guide in the back. And at the end of each video is a prayer from my daughter, Jen. Um, we're in Israel, at, um, and she's praying healing over over the listener, and we're at the Garden of Gethsemane, the empty tomb, um, the pool of Bethesda. You just see her childlike faith, and um, she just believes every day that God is healing her more. Mm. Uh, after the accident, you, your family founded Hope Out Loud. You've, you've made mention of it. Uh, tell yes. us a little bit about the ministry. Well, it's a it's a nonprofit ministry, and we we just travel around the country. We go to schools and churches, and we share Jesus. Um, we speak uh, to community groups, and um, it's just been unbelievable. We have a daily radio program. It's a one minute where we pray over the listener, and I think it airs around eleven hundred times. Uh, it's in every state, and um, we we just give resources to hurting families. Uh, we meet with people, pray with people. So God has just blossomed it. Uh, we're in several different countries, and um, it's just amazing how in our weakness, God is strong. Mm, absolutely. In your book, Beauty Marks, uh, you write about three primary ways that your wounds can give you new purpose and passion. Can you explain um, mending, mission, and mentorship? Explain just briefly each of these. Um, yes. Well, when when we allow God to mend the broken places in our heart, then then He sends us out to help others. And I think when we help and serve others, it takes the focus off of our own pain and it gives us purpose. And and then what if you could help someone else who's hurting to have purpose? And I'll give you an example. Um, my friend was just diagnosed with breast cancer, and she's been crying for three or four days. And so she came um, to Bible study early, and we just prayed over her and prayed over her. And she said, Linda, can I take the Beauty Marks books with me? I just gave her 10 books, and she said, I'm going to just hand them out to ladies. You know, in the waiting room, I just need something to get my mind off of, um, you know, that I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for all the results and, and the surgeries. And um, so, so when you help somebody just, you know, um, it, it can just be overwhelming when all of a sudden life changes and in an instant, and what do you do with that? And so, um, so truly, as we walk with God, you know, each one of us has a choice when tragedy happens, uh, either to run to God or to run away from Him. And in some of my darkest moments when I was saying, Lord, why? And God, have you been good to my family? Um, you know, God is not scared of our hard questions. And I love how when Jesus was on the cross, He even yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was giving us permission to ask our hard questions. Um, God already knows our thoughts. He already knows what we're thinking. And part of our healing process is getting the pain out loud and acknowledging it so that God can heal it. Uh, Satan loves whatever we keep hidden. It's like he has control. Satan has control over the things we keep hidden. But when we bring them to the light, God can heal them. And I love... um, to just know that um, Jesus is our escort. He's walking beside us. He's holding our hand. I love Isaiah forty-one thirteen that says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says, Do not fear. I will help you. 
So if God asks us to walk through the fire and go through something hard, he's going to be with us holding our hand, and he's going to bring greater purpose out of that. Amen. Again, the book is titled Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart. Um, A beautiful story about a wonderful family and how God transforms what seems like a disaster to us uh, and can uh, can make it purposeful and bring beauty out of uh, of those ashes. Linda Barrick, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Again, the book Beauty Mark, it's published by David C. Cook. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Also in the second hour, we'll talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the Director of Domestic Policy Studies uh, at the uh, Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. We'll talk about the Graham Cassidy Health Care Bill. It's going to be taken up, we're told, next week. So stick around. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Chris Williams, ladies and gentlemen, is engineering today's program because everyone else has abandoned ship. Um, Clark is gone. James is gone. Thank you, Chris, for coming in and making this possible. Uh, Later this hour, we're going to talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the uh, Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. We'll talk about the Graham-Cassidy health care bill that the Republicans are uh, taking up next week because the clock is ticking, and we'll explain that later in the program as well. Well, of course, we've all been poised to watching disasters unfold in various places around the country. It started with Houston and then in Florida and then uh, we saw what happened in um, Mexico and Puerto Rico. Well, hurricane Maria gained uh, major hurricane status early yesterday, strengthening to a Category 3 storm as it uh, left a devastated and completely powerless Puerto Rico in its wake and at least 15 dead people in Dominica. Well, the Prime Minister of Dominica, Roosevelt Skerritt, uh, said at least 15 people died after the storm hit the island. 20 people were missing. Maria is also deemed responsible for two deaths in Guadalupe and one in Puerto Rico. That number has since gone up. Uh, Skerritt uh, cried as he spoke to a reporter, um, ABS a TV radio on the nearby island of Antigua. Uh, he said it was a miracle the death toll wasn't much higher, not in the hundreds, adding Dominica. Uh, is going to need all the help uh, the world has to offer. And, of course, that's the uh, the cry we're hearing from a number of places uh, that have um, survived the storms but left the uh, uh, the countries, the communities devastated. The strongest hurricane to hit Puerto Rico in more than 80 years left the entire island without electricity, making it difficult to assess just how much damage was caused by Maria's unrelenting onslaught. With well, a storm with winds of 115 miles an hour traveling northwest at nine miles per hour uh, past um, the northeastern Dominican Republic and headed for the Turks uh, Caicos. It was centered about 155 miles southeast of Grand Turk Island as of uh, this morning. Once we're able to go outside, we're going to find our island destroyed, said Puerto Rico's emergency management director. And that is precisely what they uh, what they found. Uprooted trees, widespread flooding, uh, blocking many highways and streets across the island, creating a maze that forced drivers to go against traffic and pass police cars that used loudspeakers to warn people that they have to respect an overnight curfew imposed by the governor uh, to ensure everyone's safety. Uh, Maria hit Puerto Rico as a Category 4 storm. It weakened to a Category 2 as it tore through the island and then regained strength as it came close to the Dominican Republic and the Turks and Caicos Islands. Uh, The hit on Puerto Rico has been devastating with over two feet of rain, uh, incredible storm surges, the whole island without power. 
uh, says one meteorologist on the scene. And it's the worst disaster Puerto Rico has experienced in a generation. We have yet to see the devastation um, they are uh, going to have to live with, with well, for quite some time. We're hearing that they may not be able to restore power for a minimum of a month and possibly months. The hurricane was still uh, dumping rain early this morning in Puerto Rico where crumbled red roof tiles so were scattered across uh, lots of roads. Curious residents ducked under dozens of black power lines still swaying uh, in heavy winds. More than 11,000 people, more than 580 pets were in shelters, according to authorities. In the island's capital of San Juan, eucalyptus trees fell nearly uh, every other block um, over the main uh, street, uh, dotted with uh, uh, popular bars and restaurants and coffee shops, some of which uh, were damaged, but the trees making them inaccessible by normal means. Outside a nearby apartment building, a 40-year-old tourism company operator uh, told the AP how he spent eight hours in a stairwell huddled with 100 other residents when the hurricane ripped the storm shutters off his building and decimated three balconies. So people were frightened and in danger, but the death toll has been uh, much less than many thought might be the case. All of Puerto Rico remained under a flash flood warning uh, the day after the hurricane hit, the most powerful storm to hit the U.S. territory in almost a century, again bringing heavy rains, powerful winds, shutting down the power grid across the the entire island of 3.4 million people. Uh, Authorities there have embarked on damage assessments and search and rescue operations. Governor Ricardo Rossello, uh, who imposed a curfew overnight, warned that conditions remain dangerous, even though uh, Maria moved offshore on Wednesday afternoon. And uh, the recovery is continuing. Meanwhile, in Mexico, where the earthquake uh, 7.1 magnitude devastated not only um, Mexico City, but surrounding communities. Uh, The rescuers there stepped up their effort to to find any more survivors in the rubble of a school two days after the magnitude earthquake, 7.1, killed at least, now the death toll, 245 people, injuring more than 2,000 others. For more than a day, rescuers at the Enrique uh, Robinson School on the uh, capital's south side said that they were trying to free a 12-year-old girl Officials, however, announced this afternoon there were no children uh, trapped, but an adult, possibly a school worker, may still be in the rubble alive. Twenty-one children and five adults are now confirmed to have died at that school. Thousands of workers dug through the rubble, stopping occasionally to see if they could hear any sound uh, that might indicate someone had survived. The debris removed from the school changed as uh, crew workers uh, work their way deeper, sometimes by hand, from huge chunks of brick and concrete to pieces of wood that uh, looked like um, the remnants of desks and paneling uh, to uh, uh, to a load that contained a half dozen uh, sparkly hula hoops. Again, we're talking about a school and children. Rescuers removed dirt and debris, bucketful by bucketful. They passed a scanner over uh, the rubble of the school every hour or so to search for heat signatures that would indicate trapped survivors. Shortly before dawn this morning, the pile of debris uh, shuddered uh, ominously, prompting those workers uh, atop uh, the um, debris to evacuate so they would have to stop and wait. Mexico City Mayor uh, said that the number of confirmed dead in the capital had risen from 100 to 115, bringing the overall toll from the quake to 245. He also said two women and a man had been pulled alive from a collapsed office building in a, the city center uh, last night, uh, almost 36 hours after the quake. Still, frustration was growing as the rescue effort stretched into day three. Outside a collapsed seven-story office building in the trendy Roma Notre 
uh, district. A list of those rescued was um, strung between two trees. Relatives of the missing compared it against their own list of those who were in the building when the quake struck. More than two dozen names kept in a spiral notebook. Uh, you know, waiting to see has uh, my loved one, has my friend, the person I'm concerned about, have they been recovered? Are they alive? Are they dead? Are they still trapped in the building? Did they escape before it collapsed? All of those questions remaining. And um, in some cases, because the rubble is so precarious, you can't use heavy equipment. So it literally is um, hand by uh, handwork being done by uh, people who care. Just a sad situation in Mexico City, not to mention some of the smaller communities surrounding Mexico City that were also devastated by these events. We're going to take a quick break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll talk about the Portland arts tax and the wettest day in Portland since February. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Marie Fishbaugh. We're going to talk about the Gresham Cassidy health care bill. We'll also let you know about a debate over health care. Uh, between Graham Cassidy and um, Bernie Sanders, who has a single-payer uh, bill that he's introduced. It has literally no chance of passage, given the makeup of uh, the Senate in particular. Uh, but they're going to debate it on Monday. We'll tell you more about that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You know, I just heard a, an official from Puerto Rico report that it could take six months before power is restored there. Can't even imagine that, but six months uh, may be the case. Now, when you think about these natural disasters, oftentimes we think about what the people need. They need this restored. They need food. They need... After Harvey and Irma, they say that states are grappling with millions of tons of garbage. You can't bring in the new, you can't do the restoration until the garbage that's been created from the storm that's come and gone is is uh, removed. Well, three weeks after Hurricane Harvey made landfall, according to uh, Fox News, Texans who first endured the storm force winds followed by historic flooding now have another mountainous problem on their hands. That's millions of tons of garbage. Millions. And according to the latest estimate, nearly a half billion dollars is going to be spent simply hauling away the trash Twisted, shattered, waterlogged uh, remains of families' former lives, taking all of that to landfills somewhere. Well, local county and state officials in Texas uh, have mobilized procedures for debris removal, aiming to make President and uh, Governor uh, Greg Abbott's pledges to revive um, of revival a reality and not follow the example of New Orleans, where the slow-moving Hurricane Katrina response was resulted in blight that continues to this day. So they're they're on it, apparently, in Texas. And, of course, that's going to have to be repeated, one would assume, in Florida. That's going to have to be repeated in Puerto Rico. Well, Texas is hardly alone. Florida and these other Gulf states, too, are now tasked with cleaning up, not only Harvey uh, from Harvey or... Uh, uh, some of these other smaller events, but Irma and could face more destruction as storms continue to build in the Atlantic. So for them, it may not be over. In one community, trash is not the most pressing problem in the short term. Officials in Florida Keys, where up to 15,000 homes were damaged or destroyed, uh, they've worked to get power, water, and communications restored before any major debris removal can start. No cost or destruction data are, are available at this point for the Keys or the state of Florida. So... We're just talking about Texas at this point. But other areas are moving to a deal with the garbage next, says um, the uh, solid wa- the director of solid waste management department in the city of Houston. We have an estimated 126,000 homes damaged by flooding, 
driving rains, tornadoes. They had them all. Debris is all over town, generated uh, by different types of elements, he says. Uh, Our goal is to have 700 to 1,000 trucks on the road every day picking up debris. They're coming from all over the country. Mostly we're looking at construction and demolition companies to come in and to aid us. I suppose they'll salvage what they can and simply... Uh, toss what they cannot. They'll be hauling away an estimated 2 million tons of debris. Crews will traverse 640 square miles, uh, picking up drywall, carpeting, appliances, furniture, whatever else Houstonians uh, place at the curb. The completion date uh, goal is the 31st of December. So this will take them right up through the holidays, he said. And the cost? $226 million, of which FEMA will reimburse 90%, leaving, of course, 10% of $226 million is still staggering. The Texas Department of Public Safety maintains an interactive spreadsheet. Cities from the disaster zone enter a variety of hurricane-related costs, so Abbott knows what he's dealing with. Amounts increase daily. So far, estimates from cities and counties total about $352 million in trash collection fees for about 289,695 damaged or destroyed homes. So the work continues. It started with Houston. They're further along because they were first, but this same scenario will be repeated in other areas within the United States, and we'll, uh, we'll continue to follow the story. Well, a little closer to home, Portland's controversial arts tax apparently is legal. That's according to the Oregon Supreme Court unanimously ruling today. The tax doesn't violate the Oregon Constitution's ban on head tax because it exempts some taxpayers based on income and household resources, the court ruled. Well, Justice Jack Landau, he wrote the opinion, which was agreed to by all six justices who deliberated on the case. Landau announced this week that he will retire later this year. Well, retired attorney... George Whitmire sued Portland in March of 2013, a little while back, asserting that the tax violated the Oregon Constitution's prohibition on a flat rate tax, a head tax, if you will, on individuals. Well, the district and appeals court who heard his case upheld the legality of the tax. Uh, Whitmire appealed those rulings, but the high court also rejected his challenge. Well, individuals, as you probably know, and uh, and households at at or below, uh, below the federal poverty line are exempt from the tax, uh, as are taxpayers earning less than $1,000 a year who live in non-poverty households. The arts tax also doesn't apply to income from Social Security or Oregon public employee pensions. Well, Portland voters back in 2012 imposed the arts tax of $35 per person to help expand arts and music education in schools. It applied only to taxpayers age 18 and older with certain levels and types of income. Well, Whitmire, the former justice, said that he supported the funding arts for the children like his uh, trumpet playing grandson, but filed suit because he couldn't condone an unconstitutional tax of any kind. Well, city officials countered that the tax is not a head tax in large part because many people, including children, low income individuals and households and retired public employees are exempted. Deputy City Attorney Dennis Vanier he argued those exemptions make the tax legal. The Portland Public Schools District and and uh, school district, rather singular, and the League of Oregon Cities, which represent 241 incorporated cities, filed briefs supporting the city. Today's decision is a big win for Portland's kids, said the city commissioner, Nick Fish. In a statement, he said uh, he is the Portland City Council's liaison to the Regional Arts and Culture Council that staffs the uh, Taxes Oversight Committee. I'd like to talk to him or somebody about some of the stuff that uh, is in quotes, art uh, in port. The entrance to is at the Hawthorne or the Morrison Bridge. Um, 
if you're on the east side and you're going to head over, it looks like a couple of burned out buildings. People have asked, you know, who are new to the area or they in the middle of construction there. It's just rusted out. It's just anyway. Art, in quotes. Uh, Thanks to the ruling of the Oregon Supreme Court, uh, Nick Fish went on to say over 30,000 Portland children will continue to have arts education in school. Let's hope that's a little higher grade arts than some of what the city has paid for to have displayed in major thoroughfares. Jeff Hawthorne, interim director of the Regional Arts and Culture Council, said in a statement that continuing the tax will enable every grade school in Portland to have at least one art, music or dance teacher on staff and for a further investment in nonprofit arts organizations. We are grateful, he says, to the Oregon Supreme Court. Well, the city has struggled to collect the arts tax since its implementation. It's kind of an annoyance. Uh, the tax um, to expand arts and music education in schools and help fund other arts initiatives uh, is the intention, but the city has only collected an average of 74% of the tax every year. I didn't vote in favor of it, but I pay it every year, and I'm annoyed by it every year. But being annoyed isn't sufficient grounds to violate the law, so I pay it. But I'm still annoyed, and I don't like the burnt-out buildings that passes art. Well, city officials have also overspent on collections. The report found they exceeded a voter-mandated 5% cap on administrative expenses, diverting almost a million more from arts grants than they should have in 2012 to 2015, the report said. Nice job of managing those arts tax dollars. Well, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler doesn't yet have a position on how to address the excessive administrative spending. His spokesperson said he continues to work with his council colleagues on the issue. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Well, after three months without significant rainfall, remember those three months where nary a drop fell? Well, it's now rained four days in a row, and Wednesday was the wettest day in Portland in seven months. 1.09 inches of rain, which, you know, compared to some of these other areas we've been monitoring, it's not that much, but 1.09 inches of rain fell in Portland on Wednesday. The last time, by the way, that Rose City had that much rain in a day was in February, uh, when about 1.7 inches fell. I remember February. It was the first day Portland got more than an inch of rain since uh, April uh, 26th of this year. Well, the rain should completely be over tonight. Warmer weather returns on Friday, which is good news because I still have the cushions on all my outdoor furniture. Not only are they now covered with a layer of ash, it's now been thoroughly soaked into the cushions. I'm not quite sure what to do about that. I suppose if I can hose them off and hope for the best. I I really don't know what to do. I should have taken them in. I should have brushed off the ash, but should have. Never did. Anyway, the rain should completely be over tonight and tomorrow warmer. Still, September is the first month since April. Portland will have uh, had above average rainfall. About 2.1 inches have fallen so far this month. The good news is this probably helped with the uh, efforts to put out the fires in Eagle Creek. So I'm grateful for that. Hey, before we go to break, I want to mention one thing. 93.9 KPDQ. There are a couple of things we love doing One of them is the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast. That's coming up. And if you are a pastor, if you're on staff, a pastor's spouse, we want to invite you. It's our way of saying thank you. We recognize we're not the church. You are the ones that God has called to lead his people, and we want to honor you. We recognize the challenge that it takes to herd sheep, or rather kind of herd cats. That's what congregations often are. 
kind of going every direction, or sheep for that matter. Anyway, we want to honor our area pastors, their associates, ministry leaders, and their spouses at the 2017 KPDQ Pastors Appreciation Breakfast presented by Adventist Health. Please join us at 8 a.m. on Tuesday, October the 10th. I'll pause. You can get your phones out, write it down, whatever you need to do. Tuesday, October the 10th, 8 a.m. at the Embassy Suites Portland Airport for a delicious breakfast. I have it on good authority. There will be bacon involved. Music, fellowship, and a message from Pastor uh, Brian Chappelle of um, Unlimited Grace Radio. If you'd like to attend, all you need to do is register today. Go to kpdq.com. We would love to see you and to just say thank you face-to-face, give you an opportunity to fellowship with other pastors and enjoy a fine breakfast. That includes bacon. Coming up, we're going to talk with Marie Fishpaw. She's the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at Heritage, their their Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. We're going to talk about the Graham-Cassidy health care bill and what its prospects are, not to mention what's in it and whether or not it's worth passing. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, with the September 30th deadline to use budget reconciliation to repeal Obamacare, Congress has... New proposals uh, to change the health care law. In fact, um, in the wake of the Senate's recent failure to repeal and replace Obamacare, Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy have released an updated version of their bill uh, to renew that effort to take advantage of this expiring legislative vehicle. Well, here to talk with us about uh, all of this is Marie Fishpaw. She's the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity. Hey, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, there's a lot of confusion about what's in the bill, what's not. We don't have a CBO score, but even that, many have uh, suggested, will be misleading because it doesn't reflect the fact that the mandate requires uh, every American uh, to have insurance. Without the mandate, fewer will choose to have insurance. So let me just ask you to give your first impression of this uh, uh, Graham-Cassidy version of not repeal and replace, but alter Obamacare. You're right. This bill is is not repeal, uh, it, but it's definitely a significant and uh, potentially quite good alteration of Obamacare. Um, we think that it provides some very significant reforms to address the do- the damage Obamacare caused. It rolls back the regulatory mandates that were imposed, such as the mandate to buy individual insurance, and it also um, provides major Medicaid reforms and. Uh, does a lot to re-empower the states who have had a very long history of, of regulating their health insurance markets and providing for the people who need extra help long before Obamacare came along and caused a lot of damage. I know one of the things that the Heritage Foundation has emphasized is that while this is legislation that moves us in the right direction, it even requires some alterations perhaps in uh, adjusting what its stated purpose is and what it actually does, but it's really only the first of what will require many steps to get a market-based healthcare system that most Americans, I believe, are looking for. That's right. We we see this as step one in a much longer effort. We know that there's going to be need to be additional uh, legislative efforts at both the congressional level and the state levels in order to make sure that we build a a health system that's truly patient-focused, where patients are deciding how to uh, access their care, not the government on their behalf. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the elements of Graham-Cassidy. Hearings are expected next week. It makes it easier for the states to waive Obamacare insurance mandates, and it includes several mandates um, that are most responsible for driving up health care premiums. Can you talk about the whole mandate piece of Graham-Cassidy? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the Obamacare put a lot of regulation mandates on the states and on insurance companies that resulted in, in really hurting um, the people who have to buy insurance with without any subsidies. So that's people who work for small businesses. That's people who have their own company. And so those kinds of mandates are, are addressed under this bill and we think would do a lot to roll back um, the significant cost increases that have made it really hard for the, the people most hurt by Obamacare to afford a good plan. Now, part of the problem is there are constraints um, uh, of the budget reconciliation process itself. And so whether or not they wanted to do more, uh, the process they chose to move this forward uh, does not afford them that luxury at this point. That's right. And, you know, we think that they go as far as, as far as almost as far as we'd like to see them go underneath this process. We, we are recommending some fairly significant uh, changes. We think that about 14 lines ought to be deleted out of the bill to make sure that there is an unintended consequence. Uh, you know, the sponsors say that they want the bill to uh, ensure that people have access to good market-based care. We think that there is a, an issue right now that the way the bill is drafted, um, it could in fact have the unintended consequences of um, moving up to 8 million people, which is about half of the people in, in the individual market, um, from private coverage into government-run plans with no consumer choice. So we want the Senate to make that change mm-hmm. in order to improve this bill. Well, let's talk about um, uh, Medicaid. The, the Graham-Cassidy helps to refocus Medicaid to those who need it most. But of course, the hue and cry is that uh, people are the fewer numbers are going to to um, benefit from Medicaid. What does it do um, to focus on those who need it most um, while uh, providing care for those who perhaps don't fit in that um, uh, that sack, but could fit somewhere else? Well, overall, the bill's approach is to help the states make the decisions about how to help their uh, their residents. Um, access care. So, you know, regardless of, of which program they would do it, um, the, the bill empowers states to make those calls mm-hmm. instead of giving it to the federal government. On Medicaid, as you know, uh, um, under Obamacare, millions of Americans who are able-bodied and can work report into the program. What this bill would do is restore the original focus of Medicaid on our nation's most vulnerable vulnerable people. So that's the disabled and the elderly who are on poverty. And this bill would ensure that they are, once again, the focus of, um, of, of the help that we provide. Now, this new uh, package uh, reprograms Obamacare spending into uh, state block grants, as we've been de- uh, discussing, but it also retains Obamacare's level of spending. Uh, it retains uh, major taxes in Obamacare. Is this something we might expect to be addressed um, other than the um, reconciliation process that we're about to witness? Or what are your thoughts on on those two elements? Well, this, again, you know, it, it is not a repeal of Obamacare. It is it is keeping, as you say, the tax and the spending levels uh, largely intact from Obamacare, which... Um, you know, it, it's disappointing uh, that it's not a full repeal, but in terms of the constraints that Congress are facing right now, um, the fact that it takes the, way, the money away from the federal government, gives it back to the states, we think is a good move. And, that, you know, the, the important thing here, though, is to ensure that when the states are given the money, that um, that they are required to use it for um, programs that help individuals choose the care they want rather than putting them on government programs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one other thing that I'm hearing a lot of people uh, crow about is uh, coverage for pre-existing conditions. We know how the plan uh, worked under Obamacare. It was very expensive and probably not sustainable. But how does um, uh, this version of, uh, of health care, the Graham-Cassidy bill, how does it address pre-existing condition coverage? 
Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, America is one of the richest, most compassionate nations in the world, and we we take care of our people. And this bill keeps with that vision of of and the reality of how America handles the vulnerable. Um, you know, the bill today keeps the legal provisions in place that prohibit denying coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. It says explicitly on page 12 of the bill that a state who wants to take advantage of the new grant programs has to describe how they're going to ensure that individuals with pre-existing conditions can have access to adequate and affordable health insurance. Now, the timeline um, they have until the 30th, is that because they're using the reconciliation process? And how important is that date to seeing whether or not we're going to see any adjustment to Obamacare as it currently exists? It's an important date. And um, the, the, due to, to, to um, arcane details of the congressional legislative process, um, the ability for Congress to act under the current uh, legislative vehicle that they've been trying to use this year will expire at the end of the month. So this is a, an effort to take advantage of that vehicle uh, to address the damage caused by Obamacare. And we think the bill as, as drafted is, a, is important and worth fixing and, and with the fixes that we'd like to see to ensure that patients can choose the, the care that's right for them rather than being put on a government program, we think it's a worthwhile bill to pursue. Now you've got uh, Rand Paul, you've got John McCain and other Republicans who are either on the fence or have stated openly, I will not support this legislation. Are you optimistic that Graham Cassidy has a chance of passage uh, this next week? You know, I'm always optimistic. And (laughs) uh, regardless of of whether or not Congress chooses to act this week, we we know that the damage needs to be addressed. Absolutely. It's been caused by Obamacare. And and we at the Heritage Foundation and many around the country will continue to press uh, Congress both to do it either through this vehicle or regardless of whether or not they pass it, to continue to work towards a system that really empowers patients to make the good decisions about their health care and not be forced into government-run programs. We'll we'll be uh, watching very closely. Marie Fishbaugh, thank you so, so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, Marie Fishpaw is Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We were talking about the um, Graham... Cassidy health care bill. It's not the only one. We know the single payer plan that was introduced by Bernie Sanders and uh, one other that's uh, going to be considered or at least has been submitted. Uh, I wanted to let you know that CNN is hosting a town hall with Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy. They're going to be debating health care with Senators Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar on Monday. Uh, this coming nine o'clock Eastern time. So I'm guessing that's six o'clock our time. CNN anchor Jake, uh, Jake Tapper and chief political correspondent Dana Bash are going to moderate the 90 minute live event from Washington. Graham and Cassidy are the namesake sponsors of the last ditch effort to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, although it does neither. Ahead of the end of the month deadline, while Sanders introduced a new Medicare for all health care bill with a third of the uh, Senate Democrat caucus by his side, according to the uh, chamber. Members parliamentarian, uh, senators only have until the end of the month to pass a bill with just 51 votes under the procedure known as reconciliation that does have some limitations uh, associated with it. And the Senate's uh, latest push isn't all that different than the one that ultimately resulted in a health care bill being passed in the House. Well, as of uh, today, it's not clear whether there are enough Republican votes to advance the Graham-Cassidy version a health care bill that was uh, released a week ago would repeal the individual and employer mandate, turn the federal funding for Medicaid 
expansion and subsidies into a block grant program for the states. Meanwhile, Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, is pushing for his bill. He called the costs of the current system insane and unaffordable. That's a quote, by the way, promising that the average family would benefit financially under his plan because you will no longer be writing checks to private insurance companies. The trade-off, I suppose, is where the questions uh, arise. Well, Sanders, uh, the Vermont Independent, ran a hard-fought campaign for the Democratic presidential primary last year. Klobuchar, a Minnesota Democrat, who's up for re-election next year, wasn't among those senators who co-sponsored Sanders' bill. So it's interesting that you have a perspective that's not linked to uh, his um, single-payer bill. Well, the town hall debate will air on CNN uh, in uh, Spanish and CNN uh, International, as well as stream live for subscribers to CNN Go and the CNN mobile apps for iOS and Android. The town hall debate will also air on CNN Sirius XM channel 116. The town hall debate uh, will also be available on the 26th on demand via cable or satellite systems uh, and other platforms that CNN has available. So it's interesting. It will be interesting, rather, to hear the main players uh, argue the, the major points that they think make their version of health care reform uh, preferable. So we'll see. It's it's not clear that the uh, Republican version will pass. It is clear that the Bernie Sanders version has absolutely no chance, but it will be a lively debate, I have no doubt. I'm just hoping it's a balanced debate on CNN. Again, that's coming up on Monday. Well, there certainly is a lot uh, to be mindful of, to be praying about, as we recall that in Houston just a few days ago, they had a horrific event that devastated much of that community. And all of our focus was rightfully uh, pointing to them because of the devastation that was a result of flooding and the hurricane there. Then our attention f- uh, shifted to the Caribbean and Florida with Hurricane Irma. Uh, now Puerto Rico, where you have uh, Category 4 hurricane that made landfall and has devastated that island. They've lost all power throughout the whole island. And we know that they're telling us that it may be a month or months before they can restore power there. Their entire grid has been destroyed. And then you look just a little bit to the south and Mexico City is still trying to recover from a very serious earthquake. Um, The school that I think most people have been focusing on where um, many children lost their lives. Um, One little girl who's uh, whose voice was heard, actually was able to speak to her would-be rescuers and explain what she knew from her vantage point. There's a teacher that they have been trying to rescue. We now know that all of the children have been accounted for. Fewer of them survived than we had hoped, and uh, there were some other adults that managed to survive as well. But there's been major devastation uh, there. So there's just a lot as we observe the world around us and the uh, the way... Um, These disasters have devastated the lives of people um, in our own country and in other places around the world. I know that we um, we have the capacity in many cases to give financially to organizations that are ministering there on the ground, whether that's in Houston or in Florida or Puerto Rico or New Mexico. We can give financially to support those efforts. We also have the capacity to storm the, uh, the, the gates of heaven and praying for those who are suffering because they've lost everything, perhaps their homes, perhaps loved ones, and they are, are suffering uh, the consequence of these major events. And I hope we Um, We take seriously and appreciate the access that we have to the throne of grace, and we can humble ourselves before God and cry out on behalf of those who are suffering. It just breaks my heart to consider the school that collapsed with all those children. It was just a regular regular day, 
And things can can change so quickly. Earlier in the program, we talked with Linda Barrick. She's the author of Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart. She and her family had just finished watching a a recital that her daughter was involved in. Uh, Driving home, a drunk driver hit them head on, and that changed everything for uh, for that family. She still bears the scars of that event, and her husband and daughter and Uh, have suffered uh, a number of uh, physical challenges as a consequence as well. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We know that we're on a fault line, and at any time we could experience uh, the kind of earthquake that we're uh, viewing from afar on our television screens in New Mexico, and people will be looking uh, looking at what's happening to us from afar. So it uh, it reminds us that, uh, that life is fleeting, that there's very little that's certain aside from what God has promised us in his word through his Son, but that we can participate in very practical and tangible ways that includes providing material support, but also spending time in prayer for those who are suffering. I, I know that um, if we were in that position, we would appreciate it if uh, others did so for us. Remember Houston, Florida, certainly the Caribbean islands, New Mexico, and um, uh, and these uh, areas where disaster has been uh, so seriously damaging. Well, tomorrow on the program, and it's sort of an awkward uh, segue, but tomorrow on the program, we tend to look away from the major news stories. Although, if there is breaking news, we will break in and share that with you. But we try to lighten up and look at some of the lighter side of the news. As the world turns, there's always tragedy and there's always the other side of that. There are peculiar and sometimes humorous things that happen. So while not disregarding what's going on in the world, we're going to focus on some of the lighter news that's a part of uh, the world we live in. And so I'm hoping that will help take you into the weekend with a bit of a smile on your face and put things into perspective. So I hope you'll uh, plan to join us for that. We'll have a... uh, a bit of fun. By the way, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with Linda Barrick, author of Beauty Marks, Healing Your Wounded Heart, you can always go to kpdq.com and uh, access the podcast. You look for the date of the program. She was on about 4.30 today. You look for the date of the program and that uh, you can hear it from start to finish or you can listen to the segments uh, that you're interested in. But you can uh, go back. I'm not sure how far that uh, that thing goes back, but at least a month or so. Uh, And you can pick up an interview that you may have missed or if you'd like to refer someone who missed the interview altogether um, to uh, listen to it on your recommendation, they can go to the podcast and find that information. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. And I want to thank Chris Williams, who engineered for uh, for us today. In fact, uh, both James and Clark are away for the the remainder of the week and through the weekend. So I appreciate Chris stepping in and uh, holding the reins. I also want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you plan to join us tomorrow. We're going to have a little bit of fun. So be there. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.